the Spirit and the Bride say, come, and let everyone who hears uh, also say, say, come. And many times I think this book has, has been seen as a somewhat esoteric book. Uh, it is not uh, where you go if you want to sort of raise, raise uh, a group of co-workers, but surely that is a very important part of, of Revelation. And, and where, does, where does that ending come, the evangelistic ending? Where does that belong? It doesn't belong here. It also belongs somewhere in here, uh, in the, you know, before, the, before the ending of the story that is told in the book of Revelation. Uh, so you could say that this is the final call that is in Revelation is projecting, that Revelation is projecting into present reality. And in some ways, I added this, that this should always be our ending, because we always need to, there is always that intent in Revelation. Well, this was uh, interesting. That was, that was nice. That was good. That was illuminating. But the book of Revelation was not up to that only. It was up to saying, come, and to actually enlist others who would say the same thing. Evangelistic ending, there is always a sort of recruitment project uh, in this book, and, and this is how it is expressed. How about this one? Uh, this is the last of the seven churches, messages to the seven churches. Actually, I think there is a little bit of a distance between, uh, between the last uh, call to the seven churches, or, and, and this text might just be seen as a summary, a, a, a text kind of like a to whom it may concern. Listen, I'm standing at the door, knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. Uh, is that evangelistic? Is that for any specific period in history? Is that to any specific church or is it generalized to whom it may concern? I'm standing at the door. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to you and eat with you. Now, if we were to attach it to the last of this, the message to the last of the seven churches, two of the seven, in two of the seven churches, the church uh, in Sardis and the church in Laodicea, there is a great discrepancy between the self-image of that church and its reputation. Those churches have good self-images. They, they feel good about themselves. The uh, church in Sardis, you have name of being alive, but you are dead, the church in Sardis says. And, and the church in Laodicea, uh, there is a, you think that you are you know, rich and you have a health message and you have all kinds of things, but you don't know that you are deficient exactly in the areas that on which you have built, built your sense of accomplishment, your sense of, 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 of uh, you know, your reputation. So it is to that church, you could say that this ending here is, a, is an ending that speaks to, to a reality where there is a discrepancy between what we, what we see our condition as and, and what it actually is. Anyway, this we could use any time, anywhere, any, 
any place we could say this is the ending, that Jesus is always standing at the, the door, he's always knocking, and he's always wishing to come in and have uh, communion, have fellowship like this. And this text, as we have pointed out earlier, is a text that sounds like the Gospel of John. I will come in to you and eat with you and you with me. That sort of reciprocity is a Johannine way of talking in the book of Revelation. So again, this is a, another to whom it may concern ending with unrestricted application to present human reality. Then you have a text like this one, a sort of time for choosing. Let the evildoers still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. This is kind of a, a scary text, isn't it? Because there is a, there is a point uh, here uh, where this apparently could be said and, and, and all the decisions that are important to make need to be made before that point in time, before that that declaration is made. Uh, and uh, uh, if you wish to comment on on this text and make this, you know, that could be the ending. This is a conspicuous ending, a point in time beyond which no one will change their relationship with God or their most deeply held allegiance. Any any feedback on that? You're okay with that? Okay, then there is a time to recognize the choice. We've been up in the hills uh, walking uh, the last couple of Sabbaths, and, and this time, today, I, I carried with me a book of poetry. <coughs> so I was, because my wife walks a little slow, because she has a, had a knee injury, but she, she really loves to walk, so she is walking with crutches. And I walked behind her reading poetry out loud. <laughs> That's what I did today. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> and so I was reading this poem about, about not even God can change the past. Not even God can change the past. Now, that's, that was a line in a, in a poem. Let's see, who is that? Uh, Melissa, do you remember that poem? <laughs> Let, I, I meant to bring that. I meant to bring that. Uh, I think it was John Dryden. I think it is John Dryden. It's an old poem. It's before 1700. I think it is Dryden. Uh, not even God can change the past. Now, don't feel bad. That is true. But... The whole Christian message is, of course, that history isn't irreversible. That there is no, there, that could mean that history is irreversible, of course. But it doesn't mean that. The past cannot be changed, but history is not irreversible. There is a going back. There is a second chance. There is a coming home, you know. So, so that, uh, but the book of Revelation is, is quite sober, when it comes to what cannot be changed. And uh, this text in Revelation 20.12 is a text like that, sort of looking back on things that are a certain way. It cannot be changed. Well, the text is, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Also another book was opened, the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works, as recorded in the books. That is to say, there is a reality there that can, cannot be changed. 
That is reality. And the book of Revelation is, is a realistic book about that and wishes to bring that to our attention and to, to make us, us feel it, see it, as it were. Okay, now to uh, some endings where there is no end in sight. Revelation 22, 4. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Now, where, where shall we put this on a timeline? Where does this belong on the timeline? Well, I, 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 I sense a tendency here in the audience to erase some of these dividers and, you know, not compartmentalize time the way we, we started out doing. But, but surely it would apply here at the very least, wouldn't it? That there is a future reality where they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And that, that, does that ever end? Is that a sort of unending ending? Never runs out, never sort of expires. There is no, no limited shelf life, no expiration date. They shall see his face forever and ever, time without end, and his name shall be on their foreheads. So that, that, uh, that's the ending. That could be a candidate text for in a, a, on a timeline, on a sort of temporal sense. That could really be the ending. That, that would work as a text for, for the ending of Revelation. Uh, it's better. It works better as an ending of the story in Revelation than behold, I'm coming soon. The end of the story ends with uh, people see, seeing God's face and with his name on their foreheads. So this is a glimpse of a post-parousia, post-second coming, post-millennial reality, an end that will never end, as it were. There is another text like it in Revelation 15.4, a similar text. All nations will come and worship before you, for your judgments have been revealed. Now, where, where on our timeline does that text belong? All nations will come and worship before you. So this, this would also be a new earth reality, where all nations will come and worship before God, it's also a sort of an open-ended thing, and, and it, is, it, is a, it relates to the actual ending of the story that is told in the book of Revelation. This text in Revelation 15.4, the Old Testament background, there, there is a Sabbatarian uh, perspective. <clears throat> that is the, the allusion in, uh, to the Old Testament in 15.4 is from Isaiah 66.23. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. Uh, you know, what's the relation between earthly and heavenly reality? Well, this one isn't so difficult because it, it, is, it is assuming that we're back in earthly reality. The text in Isaiah, you know, the story... The human story doesn't end in heaven, it ends on earth. And we're back to earth, and we're back to human reality, and we're operating under, you know, the, what, in, on terms that are familiar to us. Now, eternity, what is it? Is eternity timelessness, or is eternity time without end? The Greek notion of eternity is timelessness. The biblical notion, the Hebrew notion of eternity is time without ending. 
It is timelessness is not a concept that the biblical mind uh, f- uh, uh, entertains. Uh, timelessness is completely a, a, a Greek abstraction. Uh, there is only there is time, and then there is finite time and time without ending. And the biblical idea uh, and the Sabbath, the Sabbath idea fits into that that notion. Not you cannot have Sabbaths in timelessness. You can only have Sabbaths in time, time without ending, as it were. So here we see a way a contrast between biblical uh, perspectives and other ideas. So this yeah, this then is another ending with no end in sight, going on forever and ever, time without end. Then we will move to to uh, the bulk of the book of Revelation. I think uh, it would be widely agreed that that much of the book of Revelation, starting in chapter 4 and actually going all the way through till the end of the book uh, into chapter 22, really belongs to the cycles of the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. And just to repeat that one more time, that, <clears throat> that even though the seven last plagues end in chapter 16, the guide, the guide, the heavenly guide, the angel that that shows the fall of Babylon and the New Jerusalem, is one of the bowl angels. So these cycles of seven are very dominant in the book, and let's see what we can do with them—a way to represent this. <clears throat> so let's uh, look at the raw material with which to work in these uh, cycles of seven. When uh, Revelation 8.1, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. This is the ending of the first revelatory cycle. <clears throat> seventh trumpet, 11.19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the ending of the second revelatory cycle. There is a bit more to it here, so you have to think a little outside this one text, but there is a, there, that's kind of a, a focal point, focal image in this text. The seventh bowl. The seventh angel poured his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And here I am saying, <laughs> this is the ending, sort of, <laughs> of the third revelatory cycle, because it is, there is, you know, all kinds of, uh, what should I say, appendices, addenda, to, to this uh, the seventh uh, bowl. Yes, Brad. All of these revelatory cycles have this earthquake, flashes of thunder, peals of thunder, you know, rumblings, uh, uh, that are reminiscent of which scene in the Old Testament? It's the, uh, the theophany at Sinai. It's the, it's the encounter with, with Moses or the Israelites at Sinai that is being echoed here in all these three revelatory cycles. God appears on Sinai and all these, these things uh, accompany it. So the choreography uh, of, these, of, of this, uh, uh, this expression has, has its roots in, in, in the Old Testament encounter. This is a, the foundational event, you might say, for the, 
for the nation of Israel. So, any, uh, well, let's try to go on here a little. So, here is a way to represent the relationship between the uh, seals, trumpets, and bowls that I think is quite, has, has a lot of merit that there is a, this was um, proposed by a German theologian by the name of Günther Bornkamm in the 30s, 1930s, uh, where he shows that there is a recapitulationist scheme to these, seven, uh, these uh, three cycles of seven. Uh, so you could line them up like this, and, and, and I think there was, would be some merit for that. Now, some people want to do it like this and say it is sequential. And, and there are the futurist uh, people, they tend to do it this way, and uh, historicists, uh, uh, no, the, the preterists, the people who say that most of Revelation was fulfilled in the first century, they tend to do it sequential. And the futurists who say that everything is in the future, they also tend to do it sequentially. So here is the recapitulation view, where the end and this, the, last, the last item in the cycle seem to come, about, uh, come out in almost the same, same point, as it were. Uh, and, uh, and then... Uh, there is the sequential view. So are you going to make a choice here? What, what, have we learned anything in our studies or we have to do the whole thing again? <laughs> I may have said this before here, but it doesn't hurt to say it again. Uh, I have never said it as bluntly as I'll say it now. I think the foreign policy of the United States is extremely, let me find a, an adjective that will not offend you too badly. <laughs> I think that the foreign policy of the U.S. is very deficient. <laughs> if I were to improve U.S. foreign policy, I would make uh, millions and, and millions of copies of a movie that was made in the 1950s called Twelve Angry Men. Uh, the person who made that movie, he just died. He just died a week or two ago. Uh, his name was Sidney Lumet. I don't see many movies. I, I'm not an expert on movies. I only know two or three. <laughs> My favorite movie is Driving Miss Stacy. So you can <laughs> see what sort of person I am. <laughs> but, but I use the 12 Angry Men. I use it in my teaching. Uh, of God and human suffering, because the the storyline in that uh, the reason why I think the U S foreign policy would be much better is you make lots of copies of this movie and you send it to every household in the world, uh, and and you hope that they will watch it because it is an amazing civic lesson. It is a lesson in the rule of law, all kinds of things, due process, other things that in some ways have gone by the wayside lately. So you, it's a movie that probably couldn't be made today in the U.S. It could probably just be long in the 50s when, when, when people in this country really believed in their institutions and took pride in them and featured them in such a big, beautiful way as this movie does. Yeah. So it's, it's a murder trial, 12 jurors, and only one, when they have the first vote, there is one vote who says not guilty. 
uh, and he isn't sure if the guy is guilty or he's just he's just not sure that he is guilty and you're supposed to be guilty beyond reasonable doubt. He thinks there is reasonable doubt. He wants to hear the story again. He's a very important character in the movie, of course, because everybody else thinks he is guilty. That there is one way of looking at the evidence. You know, the, and that has been seen in a sort of cosmic conflict theology. It looks a certain way. It looks like it must be this way. That we cannot you know, fathom, you, know, you put the pieces together, you add it up, it looks a certain way. But maybe there is another way of looking at the evidence. Maybe there is another interpretation. So he, uh, he then gets, uh, gets a hearing. And then, of course, as you go through the movie, everybody changes their vote in the end. Uh, so what I do when I, <coughs> what I've done lately when I show this movie, I can't show it too often, but I do use it from time to time in, in God and Human Suffering. I assign, this, I divide this, the students up in, in groups, and I assign one character to each group. So there will be 12 groups. Uh, and then I ask the students to see on, if, the, if the juror changes his mind only by looking at the evidence, you know, only by the force of evidence, or if the juror also has to confront something in himself, that he has to change his prejudices, his, that there is some, some personality problem that also have to be confronted. And this, this story, this movie does an amazing way of, of taking, of creating characters that also have to confront something in themselves. Uh, no, and not just not just seeing the evidence. So, this notion, rule of law, due process, you know, the the, the movie does a, an amazing way uh, about that. Now, there is one personality defect that isn't cured in this movie. The 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 uh, some personality defects, the the defect of pride, the person who is pride who is proud in that movie, he's a guy who doesn't sweat. Do you never sweat? They ask him, you know, he's a very unperturbed person. I've seen it now many, many times. You should not expect to, <laughs> to remember that. But, but there is a person who is proud, but his problem is cured. There is a problem, person who is deeply hurt about his relationship with his son. That's the, sort of the main, one of the main characters. That problem is also cured eventually. There is a person who... who uh, yeah, he is, uh, has racial stereotypes. He's, uh, he's uh, just, he has a way to, you know, he's, uh, he's racist, basically. That problem is also cured. He sits there in the end, not guilty, you know. The other, no, I'm convinced now, not guilty, you know, they all say. There is one personality problem that isn't fixed in the, in the, in the movie. Two, two characters in the movie have that problem. Quite interesting. I've analyzed this movie now thoroughly. <laughs> the problem that isn't fixed, there are two jurors who actually vote not guilty in the end, but they vote without conviction. They simply do not know. Oh, I don't know. It could be this way. It could be that way. It's complicated. I don't know. You know, there are two characters. One is a very nicely dressed suit and tie person, and the other one is the guy who wants to go to the baseball game. And has a, you know tickets burning a hole in his pocket. One of the guys says, <laughs> "Those two guys are superficial at the beginning of the movie, and they are superficial at the end. Superficiality is not cured. 
it, the movie, I don't think it intended to do it, but it presents superficiality as though superficiality is an incurable problem. But all those other problems, prejudice and all kinds of other things, is actually fixed in the movie. Now, this is bad, because you have to make up your mind here. You cannot say you don't know. <laughs> You're reading Revelation. Is it sequential? Is it... Is it uh, 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 recapitulationist, you know. That's like those two guys in the movie that said, well, I don't know, it could be this way, it could be that way. <laughs> I think better of you than that, but you get the idea. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Neither recapitulation, I think, works in, in many ways in, because it does seem that the story ends about the same point, that all of these, uh, when you come to, to number seven, you are in similar territory in some ways, but it doesn't. It isn't entirely adequate. It isn't entirely satisfactory. And I will propose a new way of representing these that I have not seen represented quite this way before. Here is what I will call the revelatory view: neither, neither, sequ- neither recapitulationist, neither uh, and 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 sequ- uh, sequential. Because the priority of the book is not to inform about history, but to inform about theology. So it is the revelatory uh, idea sets another agenda, sets another task for itself. So how have we, how have people usually been reading this book, including the Adventist community? The tendency has been to read it for historical information that this is history written before it's, it happened, and we are reading it, you know, it's a sort of predictive history. And that has been the main thing, and getting those things right has been the priority. Now, we are not saying that there is not real history in the book of Revelation, but we are saying that the priority in the book of Revelation is not to inform about history, but to inform about theology. So there is a revelation of Jesus Christ, who is again the revealer uh, of God, as, as, as Harvey uh, brought out in, in his prayer. So, and then, but you see what I'm doing here. I'm prioritizing the seven seals. See, I, I make that the biggest one. You see, see what, I, what, what that illustration is meant to say? It makes the seals sort of frame the whole story. And, and then you will see what, what we will be up to in a minute. I sent my slides out to to two people who know how to do animation. So the first one I sent it to to Snorri Olafsson, and here is what he he did for me uh, to represent the way these things should be. Uh, So what is this? I'm putting the trumpets and the and the bowls within the seven seals. I'm sort of letting the seven seals eat them up, you know, to have something within. You see what I'm... That, that in some ways you get your perspective most fully in the seven seals. Uh, uh, well, let's go through it and, and, and just see how that works. So here again, that was quite clever. I don't know how to do that, but... I sent it also to one of our wonderful student workers in the School of Religion and asked her to do it, and this is what she did. This uh, the, uh, Ali Benitez, 
she uh, represented it like this for me. And you see that would also work. It would, it would be then something within something else. They are overlapping. You know, they cover the same territory, but one is within the other. So that's kind of, uh, and I'm calling this the revelatory view, putting revelation as, a, as the intent of, the whole, of, the, of all these sequences. And then, <clears throat> what do we see then, if we now focus for a moment on the, on the sequence of the seven seals? We see in Revelation 5.2, a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who has what it takes to open the scroll and break its seals? That's the question. And we have argued here, and I just want to repeat that, that that the content of the seals in many ways is a reflection of human reality. The book of Revelation is about human reality. It is about cosmic reality, you might say. And then that would, re, re, that would be the content of the sealed scroll then is, is, is of that, that nature. And then, <clears throat> so what did they do? They do what I wish we would do even better at Loma Linda. <clears throat> they put down a search committee and looked for suitable candidates to do this. And what did the search committee say when they had done their work? They came back in session. No one in heaven or under the earth or uh, heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scrolls and to look into it. Nobody could do it. That's the problem in heaven. And so, is it fair to say that there was silence in heaven at the beginning of this session? That there is, uh, Paul Actemeyer says, there was silence, unaccustomed silence, because heaven is a noisy place, you know. But here, when this question is, is asked, there is no noise, there is nobody saying anything. Everybody is silent until, of course, uh, and still here, uh, uh, you might say that the silence is even, even more, uh, more sort of, you can hear a pin drop, because in the middle, then I saw in the middle of the throne and the four living creatures, and in the middle of the elders, a lamb standing as if it had been brutally murdered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. That's my translation. Having been brutally murdered is, is a, a way of saying slaughtered and, and preserving the connotation of the word that is used in, in Greek there. Now do you think there is silence when that vision appears? Nobody, there was nobody who raised their hand to say, I can open the scroll, I can break the seals. Nobody said, you know, you know there is all kinds of, <laughs> we have all kinds of use, all kinds of sense of, qual of our qualifications. I have regrets in my life. Some things I thought I was qualified to do. When I've thought about it afterwards, I decided, well, actually, I re really wasn't, wasn't qualified. And I'm just amazed uh, in some ways today at, at what, uh, you know, all the people who want to be president of this country, for example. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so... Here is nobody who thinks they can open the scroll. Nobody wants to, to sort of step into that. And then there is Jesus, who is, uh, of course, the one who can do it. The Old Testament background text for this uh, silence in heaven, 
The best Old Testament background text for silence in heaven, I think, is in Isaiah 52, 14 and 15. Not much work has been done on that text. There was silence in heaven. But uh, what little has been done, I think, should go in this direction. That is where I have taken it in Isaiah 52, 14 and 15. Just as there were many who were astonished at him. This is the last of the suffering servant passages in Isaiah. So marred was his appearance beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of mortals. So he shall startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which had not been told them they shall see, and that which they had not heard they shall contemplate. What do you see here in this text? Do you see someone reduced to silence? But it is not just silence as such. It is silence where there has been criticism. It is silence where there has been doubt. It is silence where there have been all kinds of questions. And now it seems like kings shall shut their mouths, that there is something appearing in this scene, something Something breaks in on the problem uh, of human existence here that is so beyond what is expected that it leads to silence. That which had not been told them, that which lay completely outside of anyone's imagination, that is what they are seeing. That which they had not heard, they shall contemplate. There is a, then what is this? It's a revealing action, isn't it? Something that breaks in an apocalyptic event, a sort of pulling aside the curtain, removing the lid as it were, and this leads to silence. And then there is this idea, and I wrote something about it uh, in the uh, that the first there is, you know, silence in the heavenly council, and then and then there is uh, silence again, uh, but for a different reason. This is another text in Isaiah similar to, to uh, or that also plays into the scene in Revelation 5 and 6. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, 49.7, uh, To one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the slave of rulers, kings shall see and stand up, princes and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen. I'm saying some are standing, some are prostrate, and all are, all are silent. All are silent. So representing then this kind of reality as the ending of Revelation is what I'm trying to do here. Uh, to give Revelation a revelatory ending. A picture of God ending, you might say, and and even a cosmic conflict ending. Because there is a problem, there is a crisis in in created reality, a cosmic crisis, a crisis in heaven. And how has God responded? How has he addressed that problem? And there are seals and trumpets and bowls to tell us what happened. And then... Here, I will break it down like this. <clears throat> the silence before Jesus appears, before the, the slaughtered lamb appears, is silence in the face of human reality. You might want to change that to cosmic reality. The silence before is silence predicated on the appearance of divine inaction. God, you are not doing enough. 
there is a discrepancy between what is expected and what is actually happening. The silence before is grounded in the conviction that God is not doing what God ought to do with respect to solving the cosmic conflict. The silence after is silence in the face of the divine reality that is revealed in the middle. The silence after is silence resulting from the revelation of Jesus Christ. The silence after is silence grounded in shock and awe in the face of the unexpected, silence in the face of what God has done to solve the cosmic conflict. And so, reading the Revelation for its revelatory message, my candidate text for the ending of this book is Revelation 8.1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. That's it. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Thank you very much.